You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, spring break. Woo! We're recording this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast a little earlier in the day than we normally do. Neither one of us have our shirts off yet. Yet. Uh, has your life been thrown into as much chaos as mine has because... Uh, Area pre-K slash daycare centers insist on keeping the same general calendar as public schools, so they also have a spring break. See, is yours closed for the whole week? Yes. Oh, man. No, ours. The, our daughter's preschool just closed on Thursday and Friday. She doesn't normally go Fridays anyway, so it's really only Thursday that is a mess for us. God damn it. Yeah. There you go. Well, yeah, but you're, you're over at that uh, at pre-K with all, the, with all the cool people, all the hip people. When I came to your daughter's birthday party a couple months ago and I didn't know anybody there, it was all uh, it was all parents from the from the preschool. I got, I got a load of what was going on. There's some real hippie shit going on at my daughter's preschool. And I'm not hating on it. Not one bit. Not when, you know, I ask her what you did that day and she's like, oh, I painted a rainbow using the bottoms of my feet covered in purple paint. And I'm like, this might actually be true. You might actually have done that today. Anything else you want to get out there? How's well, your off-season conditioning program? I'll tell you what I want to get out there. I roll up to your house today to record this podcast, and I see someone's out there living the hashtag van life. I've been told I shouldn't use that hashtag. Why not? That there's an actual hashtag van life movement, and that I might not qualify for it because what? of uh, my status as a minivan owner. What do you have to do to qualify? I've got to have like a big-ass van that you live in that's converted into a kitchen and a dope-smoking hovel. Well, that, I guess. that seems a little overly prescriptive on their part. I agree. I agree. What did you say the color that is described as? as a... I believe it's it's called pre-dawn gray is the actual gray. name of the... Gray is what I'm looking at out there. It's gray. You would describe it as gray? The car's gray. It's a dark gray, for sure. It's darkish. You might Maybe a, the, the kind of gray that creeps upon you slowly in the pre-dawn hours. What do you think? <laughs> it's like the exact color of that sweatshirt you're wearing. Would you consider that a pre-dawn gray sweatshirt? from Roots of Fight that you are wearing right now. Are you talking about this Galveston Giant, Jack Johnson, Roots of Fight hooded sweatshirt that I'm wearing? That is what I'm referring to. Yeah, I'd say probably pre-dawn gray. Yeah, okay. Same color as the minivan. I'm pretty well color coordinated today. Uh, on brand, really. People are going to look at me driving around. They're going to be like, who is that hot ass dad color coordinating with his minivan? And they're going to like look at their watches and be like, what time is it? Let's feel like pre-dawn hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by MMA Pack, the subscription box service uniquely targeted toward MMA fighters and fans. We've been pleased and excited over the past few weeks to start telling you guys about the services offered by MMA Pack, about the founder of the company, Jeremy, uh, who's a longtime fan of the sport and a good dude. Basically, it works like this. You go to MMAPack.com to sign up, and then for the low, low price of $39, they'll start sending you a box full of around $100 worth of MMA clothes, gear, supplements, and accessories in the mail every single month. At this point, though, we couldn't blame you if you were thinking about checking out MMA Pack, but you were wondering to yourself, 
what exactly will I get if I sign up? So Ben, tell the kids what they can expect in the actual boxes of gear they will receive in the mail. Yeah, it's a great question, Chad. The good folks at MMA Pack tell us they scour various MMA brands trying to find the best deal for them and their customers. So boxes are different each month. Some examples of recent boxes they've sent out to subscribers in the last couple of months include stuff like a box with a Roots of Fight hoodie, a tatami t-shirt, and some protein powder. They also sent out a box including some gameness shorts, a Nuaza hat, a pair of hand wraps and a training t-shirt they sent out boxes with a nuaza hoodie some hand wraps roots of fight tank top uh some goo energy gel which i know you love chad so it sounds like the stuff is always changing but it sounds pretty cool gotta keep my energy up yeah you got to uh if you've checked out the prices on leading mma brands and then you think about what you can get for 39 dollars, it actually seems like a pretty great deal in addition to that right now mma pack is offering a pretty sweet introductory offer uh exclusively for our listeners just go to the website mmapack.com that is spelled exactly like it sounds p-a-c-k to check out the particulars and enter the promo code co-main event that's all one word, to save 20% off your first pack. Uh, ben, about three or four days left to get the Dundasso t-shirts. Oh, no, and then gone forever, I'm gone sure. Gone forever, off the market. Never to be seen or Re even spoken of again. Real collector's items. Yep. You can go go there, probably get yourself a pre-Don Gray Dundasso hoodie. You can just call anything anything you want, apparently, so sure, why not? We got music again this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, on Twitter at The Fifth Element, or on soundcloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. Three rounds as usual this week in the Coming Event Podcast. In round number one, win a big fight, call out the champ, and say the biggest star in your division is on steroids. Did Jimmy Manoa just complete some kind of correspondence course from Diaz University? And in round number two, the best thing about a potential fight between Gunnar Nelson and Steven Thompson is that you know both Wonderboy's dad and John Kavanaugh will each think they're the Mr. Miyagi of that shit. And in round number three, dude, seriously, we were just kidding about convincing Kelvin Gastelum to stay at middleweight by having him fight Anderson Silva. Can no one take a fucking joke anymore? All that, plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Ryan in New York. And he writes... Is that New York State or New York City? I, I don't know. Well, Ryan might have to write us back. Let us know. I feel like... It's, no, a different, I, it's a different question if it's coming from Brooklyn or if it's coming from high in the Catskills. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, he could be like a 70s comedian touring the Catskills hotels right now. God, I hope that's the case. He could Doing be, a lot of take my wife please kind of material. He could be at the library in Poughkeepsie, for all we know. Sure. Or maybe he walked down to the like internet bodega in the Bronx and emailed us this. Or maybe he's like a city councilman in Albany. It's, it's hard to... Uh, you're right. It's hard to set the scene here until yeah. we know exactly where Ryan is writing us from. Anyway, he emails Lorenz Larkin to Bellator. That's a really nice pickup for them. I think Bellator is doing a great job of picking their spots with former UFC fighters. Your thoughts on this latest edition? Now that's a that's a Poughkeepsie kind of question, right you there. You think so? Yeah, definitely. That's from the Ivy League. I I taste so Poughkeepsie to me. Go Big Red. <laughs> sure. Is that where Cornell is? is no, Poughkeepsie? Ithaca. Cornell's in Ithaca. Same thing. What's in Poughkeepsie? Fuck, I don't know. No, Vassar? I think Vassar's in Poughkeepsie. Sure. Look it up during the break. Uh, ben, Lorenz Larkin over to Bellator. Uh, this is one of those cases where Bellator has managed to scoop up a dude sort of in the prime of his career, uh, a guy that 
um, was successful in the UFC, but at the same time, it didn't really feel like the UFC had big plans for him. Uh, so I don't know, man, this might turn out to be a situation where this move to Bellator is good for the company and for the fighter, because it feels like, uh, Lorenz Larkin was lost in the shuffle a little bit in the UFC, um, to everyone except for maybe hardcore fans. Uh, but in Bellator, I don't think it would take very much for him to kind of make a name for himself among, uh, whoever it is that watches Bellator, the people who stumble upon Spike TV and or fall asleep during a cops marathon, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I mean, this seems like a good move for everybody except for maybe the UFC. Because I do think that the UFC had their chance to figure out what Lorenz Larkin meant for them and what they could do with him. And they kind of just saw him as another guy. Or at least that's the way it seemed from the way they booked him or, or presented him to us. And then, you know, especially you see him in the last couple of fights where he beats uh, Jorge Masvidal and then TKO's Neil Magny. And you're like, okay, it to... The viewer who's been paying attention, it feels like we have not seen perhaps the limit of Lorenz Larkin's abilities, which is different than when you see other guys like Ryan Bader or somebody moving over to Bellator, where it seems like, okay, he was in the UFC long enough and faced enough of a variety of competition that we all got a sense or thought we got a sense of what he could and could not become. And I don't think we got that yet with Lorenz Larkin. So it does feel like Bellator is getting something that feels like it has a real future in it still the question is you know how do you maximize that right well and i think one of the good things about lorenz larkin ben is that he has fought in three different weight classes during his professional mma career everywhere from light heavyweight on down to welterweight and you know that may well make him attractive to bellator too because they can go ahead and maybe if they want to mix and match him with everybody between uh rory mcdonald and chael sonnen you know what i mean like uh uh it seems like bellator if we can read into a little what they've doing, been doing recently, it doesn't feel like too much of a stretch to say they plan to be a little bit loosey-goosey with these weight classes. You know, they were talking about having Chael Sonnen fight at uh, at heavyweight and having him fight at light heavyweight for his last fight against Tito Ortiz. So uh, the fact that Lorenz Larkin might be able to kind of bounce around between some different weight classes uh, probably makes him only more attractive to Bellator and, of course, to Scott Coker, who is a guy that he has a relationship with since, uh, you know, Lorenz Larkin, I believe he originally came over to the UFC after it bought Strikeforce, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Well, and I guess what I wonder is, you know, first of all, like you said, the the range of weight classes you can fight at, that's a good thing. I, my boss at uh, MMA Junkie, Dan Stupp, made a remark that half-jokingly, but kind of true, that Bellator is almost to the point where they could just do welterweights and old guys and that's enough you could run like almost a successful promotion just doing that kind of stuff uh, especially with what they've added recently what i wonder is is the ufc going to have cause to regret Loren- letting lorenz larkin go or is it just going to be like well hey there goes another one that bellator could use but we really didn't really make much of a difference to us yeah i, I mean the just in a in a small way and like a pinpoint way, just looking at the the fighters that the UFC has allowed to walk away in the last several months, it does. Maybe I'm just imposing this, the whiff of this attitude onto what the UFC is doing, but it, it, it to me, it has the smell that the UFC thinks it's kind of bigger than these guys. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, we can let Kyoji Horiguchi walk away. We can let Nikita Krilov walk away. We can let Lorenz Larkin walk away and it won't ultimately affect the product that much. I don't know to the extent of what that's true, uh, to the extent that that'll end up being true. But, uh, uh, 
like I said, I think Lorenz Larkin feels like the kind of guy who could be like a mid-level star if you want, if he could get on a roll and if you wanted to uh, promote him as such. So I don't know how it's going to end up affecting the UFC. Here's a question that may very well just bend your mind into unrecognizable shape trying to answer it. Is the question, where is Vassar College? <laughs> we'll get to that later, I'm Poughkeepsie. sure. Poughkeepsie. I'm sure somebody right now... I just now looked it up. It's in Poughkeepsie. Okay. Did yeah. you really just Fact look check, it up? Yeah. Vassar's in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> Good for you. Good friend of mine went to Vassar. All right. Uh, so if you're the UFC and you've decided... Say you made a calculation where you said, you know what? We one guy we can't afford to let go is Sage Northcutt because we just we really roll all, all in on Sage Northcutt. But Lorenz Larkin, nah, he can go fight somewhere else. It's not as you know if he wants a raise, we're just not going to do it. It's not worth it to us. We would rather spend that money on Sage Northcutt. Now, just competitively, when you look at what they they have each accomplished so far in their careers and you know the win loss record, that would be insane. Lorenz Larkin, the far more accomplished fighter, clearly the far better fighter. However, since we have all learned in recent years that this game doesn't really play by those rules, even if sometimes we would like to pretend that it does, would that be a bad calculation on the UFC's part or an incorrect calculation to say we're better off spending that money on Sage Northcutt than we are on Lorenz Larkin? It's an easy calculation to make that you will turn any conversation back to the topic of Sage Northcutt. It's not, it's not That's true. That's the only calculation I need to make here. That's just, this is the first conversation today I have sur- turned ben to Sage Folks, Northcutt. It's like you're just, you're walking down a hallway looking for the first door that you can walk through to Sage Northcutt Listen, town. Sage Northcutt is an interesting experiment in this sport. I think you can you can try to deny that for the purposes of this podcast, but you know it's true. Now answer the damn question. I look forward to your future spinoff podcast, the Sage Northcut event podcast. You're going to keep dodging this? I, I can think, go well, Paige Van Zandt if you want. It's an interesting question, but doesn't it require a lot of assumptions? Like, we don't necessarily really know how the uh, negotiations between the UFC and Lorenz Larkin went, went down. We don't know, or at least I don't know, maybe you do, uh, that if they just told him he could walk or if he just wanted more money that they than they wanted to pay him. Uh, we don't know. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head where Sage Northcutt is at in his contract and whether or not the UFC really wants to lock him up long term or whether or not we're going to get to the end of this and they'll they'll banish him back to uh, looking for a fight again. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know that that's uh, that that's like what they're thinking at this very moment. I think if both of those things turn out to be true, like if the if your question is valid, then I do think that that is a weird move and I think it's a weird thing. Uh, for matchmakers to think they could try to do at this point just because the, from the very beginning, the thing that has seemed so weird about the Sage Northcutt slash Paige Van Zandt experiment is that I would have thought we had already reached the point in this sport where we knew you can't really predict this shit. You know what I mean? You can look at a person and say, oh, yeah, this guy is going to be a star. Uh, and I think nine out of ten times you're going to be wrong. Otherwise, we'd be out here swimming in the stars. You know, we'd have a UFC roster full of stars. And at this point, we got a UFC roster full of the exact opposite. True. Uh, And even on those occasions when you can look at somebody like John Jones, who when he first burst on the scene, people who saw him thought, okay, this guy is something different. This guy's going to be for real. And he is. And yet it's not quite as simple as we just kept him around and let him mature into a star and everything was fine happily ever after. Because as you see... There are, there are plenty of ways to screw this up. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He also, writes, John Jones from Ithaca, New York. 
which is where Cornell is. Cornell. Go Big Red. As he's from Endicott, but right next to Ithaca. Go on. I don't think Vassar has any teams, does it? Does Vassar have a mascot? Get on that. Let me know if Vassar has a mascot. You're the one with the Vassar, Vassar page pulled up, right? I got to read this question from Eric Murphy. All right. Well, I'll get on this important Vassar. It's emotional. I got to get into the right headspace. This is an emotional question, okay. even though he spelled Brad Pickett's name wrong every Not time. a great start. My tears just dried from seeing Brad Pickett leave his hat in the cage. The fan in me wanted to see him go out on a win, but the overwhelming outpouring of love from the fans in attendance made that kind of a trivial point. Dan Hardy's eloquence brought the tears, and Pickett's sincerity brought the rest. Sad to see such a fun fighter go, but I'm glad he punched his own exit ticket and got one last ride in front of the fans that adore him. The sport lost another one of the good guys. Talk about one punch and his legacy. So yeah, uh, in my opinion, Ben... Eric Murphy kind of nails this thing like a uh, surprisingly emotional scene. Uh, even for me sitting at home, watching this thing go down uh, when Brad Pickett looks like he's going to cruise to a unanimous decision victory over Marlon Chito Vera in their fight, their catch weight at 140 pounds at UFC fight night, one Oh seven only to see Brad Pickett get kicked upside the head and uh, finished on the ground with punches uh, just about a minute and 10 seconds before this thing was going to be over. Uh, Brad Pickett, obviously emotional. Cheeto Vera gets a little emotional. Uh, I do, I agree with Eric Murphy. I thought Dan Hardy, uh, and Dan Hardy is a good talker, but I thought his, the way that he almost talked Brad Pickett off the emotional ledge here in the cage. Like it looked like Brad Pickett was about to lose it. And Dan Hardy kind of brings him back to the moment and says, these people love you. It doesn't matter what happened. I, w- I personally was impressed and surprised by Dan Hardy's uh, abilities in that, in that instance. Uh, and it ends up being, I thought, like a surprisingly heartfelt uh, and, and not necessarily feel-good moment because Brad Pickett did just get knocked out. But like, you, at least I came away from it feeling like, feeling the bond that all of the people in this really small niche sport oftentimes build between each other. Yeah, you know, I wrote about this today, so I ended up thinking a lot about kind of the question of what do you make of Brad Pickett's career? Because when you look at it numbers-wise, it's not super impressive. Like, he ends this on a three-fight losing streak, lost, I think, six of his last seven, five and nine overall in the UFC. Um, Never really got into the the upper echelon of any division in the UFC. Last time last time Brad Pickett won two fights in a row, and the only time he won two fights in a row in the UFC was in 2012. Um and yet kind of a beloved figure just because for one thing he had kind of a a look that was his own even though it also seemed like it was like a miniature version of Brad Pitt from Snatch, but you you knew, okay, here's, you see that hat. That's Brad Pickett. That's Brad Pickett's hat, baby. He's going to leave that hat in the cage, I think, which was an awesome twist on the whole, uh, taking off your gloves, leaving it in the cage retirement thing. Uh, and he brought an, uh, dependably exciting fighting style. Uh, and you realize he's the kind of fighter that the UFC relies on a lot, fills a lot of gaps for the UFC to have guys like that. And fans really latch on to guys like that. He become, you know, peers latch on to guys like that. He becomes somebody that other people look up to and, and want to emulate in certain ways. And when he leaves, and it's kind of this emotional moment when he leaves, especially because he announced it beforehand and gave people some time to let that sink in. It's when I think it reminds me that we love to get caught up in rankings and stuff like that in the sport, but it's more than about just how many won and how many lost. And Brad Pick is a good example of that, the, the impact that you see that he had on people, fans and other fighters. Yeah, uh, he's going to turn 39 years old this year. 
Uh, and a couple, a couple of things about Brad Pickett. I think you're right. And it totally makes, made me realize when I was watching this as Brad Pickett comes down to the cage in the suspenders with the suspenders attached to his Reebok shorts, which I thought was a dope look. Uh, and the, the hat and he's reading the newspaper, which was kind of an old school Brad Pickett walkout thing made me realize like, how much personality we indeed are sacrificing every time out when every single person in this sport comes to the cage wearing nothing but the Reebok gear because we have to fulfill the, uh, you know, the exclusive licensing and merchandise contract. Yeah, or whatever. so they all look like just members of the high school wrestling team. Right, like Brad Pickett would be a different dude if we didn't think of him walking out to the cage to... Uh, like that kind of retro British rock and roll song, wearing the hat, the suspenders, yeah. and reading the paper. Like, Looking that's like a he big just rolled of... in off, out of the pub right. when really he's been at American Top Team for like the last six weeks. Right. But yeah, uh, yeah you're, you're totally right. And it makes you wonder what we will sacrifice in the future without realizing that we've sacrificed it. Another thing that strikes me about, about Brad Pickett is that he was a guy who was a mainstay in England uh, during the early 2000s, back when like Cage Rage was was going great guns, like he only started fighting in 2004, but he didn't debut in the WEC until 2009. He already had 21 fights, almost all of them uh, in England. Uh, he fought a couple times in the United States before that, uh, but you know had had really like really was truly beloved by the fans uh, in England, almost. I, you know, I don't want to say he's a throwback to the territory days, like he's a pro wrestler or something, but like he really did make his name with Cage Rage in uh, the United Kingdom back when, back before the UFC started this kind of like international push back when you could have guys like Michael Bisping before he was on The Ultimate Fighter who had gained some kind of notoriety uh, in their home country. So in the States, I don't know that we fully appreciate Brad Pickett for the kind of uh, territorial star that he was in England. Uh, and again, like, is that kind of dude not really going to exist anymore in the, like the, the present day or the future of this sport? Or are we headed the exact opposite way where dudes like Nikita Krilov are going back to Russia to fight and you're going to have a lot more kind of like regionalized, uh, guys who are able to become known quantities, before or perhaps at this point, you know, never graduating to to the what we consider the quote unquote big stage. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. But I, I also think that one of the things you see more is the UFC kind of cycling through a greater number of fighters, uh, people. And I hear this a lot from both managers and regional promoters, uh, you know, some of whom are getting out of the game, some of whom are, are uh, sticking in it, saying that it seems like the fighters they deal with kind of fall into two categories. The people who aren't really serious about it and kind of just want to say they fight, uh, want to fight every once in a while, uh, and are never really going to try to think of it as a career they're trying to take to the next level, and the, the people who are just trying to get to the UFC right now as soon as possible and just sign a contract as soon as they can. And when they do sign that contract, it's kind of as nobody entry-level guys because they haven't had a chance really to build up much of a following anywhere and uh, then they're just lumped in with the anonymous portion of the roster. Uh, and I hear a lot of concern from people about where that leads both the regional promotions and the UFC and those those entry-level guys. I don't know. What I can tell you is that uh, Vassar is known as the Brewers 
The Brewers? That's right. Oh, I like that. Vassal um, Brewers. They do right. have athletics, including basketball, baseball, cross country. Also, according to Wikipedia, Quidditch. We've got a Quidditch team Come because nerds. Come on now. Um, the, maybe the best thing I've learned from this Wikipedia page is that the motto of Vassar College is purity and wisdom. I see. Come for the fight talk. Stay to learn about small private universities in upstate New York. There you go. Next question this week comes to us from Matthew Fuentes Jimenez. He writes, first time or long time listener, first time questioner. Turns out one Matthew Allen Hughes wants to come out of retirement and do the damn thing again. Who would you like to potentially see him up against? Maybe Hughes versus Penn four? Interested to see what you guys think. Please discuss. This question assumes that we want to see him up against anybody. Yeah, no, what the implicit part of this question is misguided, I would say. I don't necessarily know that uh I need to see Matt Hughes come out of retirement and fight anybody in 2017 MMA. Uh, and Matt Hughes, uh, before his heel turn on the Ultimate Fighter way back in the day, it's pretty safe to say Matt Hughes was one of my guys. Like, in the old school UFC. You mean before you got to know him, you really yeah. liked him? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the things I looked forward to the most was seeing Matt Hughes show up and wrestle the shit out of someone in the octagon uh, as the UFC welterweight champion. At this point, though, 43 years old is Matt Hughes, going to turn 44 in October. Uh, the speculation that I have seen is that he will wind up over in Bellator, not necessarily the UFC, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense, uh, considering his age and the place that he would be at in this sport. Uh, and also, I think, would tell you something about uh, loyalty, I guess, maybe. Oh, this old... Retired fighter gets laid off from his cushy non-job job, and See, then the next thing you know... Yeah, that's where I was going to go, is is this is this something he really, really wants to do, or is it like, hey, I retired on the understanding that you would just keep sending me checks for doing nothing, and then the landscape changed and the checks stopped coming, and is it kind of out of anger at least a little bit, that you decide, oh, you know what? Then maybe I will fight again because there's nothing stopping me now since you broke your end of the deal. Uh, so I'll go ahead and I'll go fight for Bellator. We'll see how you like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I would hope that that's not influencing his decision because I'd hope if you're coming back to fight, it's because you really got the old fire in the belly and not just because you want to pocket a few more paychecks and you're mad at the UFC. You know, when I found myself thinking about what would I watch of Matt Hughes, what, what fight would I watch him in, and there's really only one that I could think of, and it's Matt Hughes versus Matt Sarah again, uh, just because of the personal element of that one. I, you could, you could reluctantly get me interested in that one. And then I thought about whether Matt Sarah would do it, and I realized, well, he'd have to lose about a hundred pounds to get down to welterweight again, and also. Didn't he have to have a rib taken out of his body surgically, which tells you something about the age these guys are at right now. All right, you've probably seen this report, but I'm going to just read it because I think it's going to make you depressed. Uh, from Yahoo's Cage Rider, March 15th, so a few days ago now, Matt Hughes considering a return to MMA and a possible bout with Hoist Gracie. Get the fuck out of here. Fuck out of here with that, son. That's I'm not trying to, to see that. That's a total Matt Hughes move, though, right? Like Matt Hughes looking around being like, hmm, who can Matt Hughes beat up? Probably. I feel like people need to get out their their protest signs and the, the picket line for that one if Bellator tries to pull that one off because we got to put our foot down here at some point. Coming off a win, though. Hoist Gracie, right? Shut up. 
Jesus Christ. Last question this week comes to us from Dave Bishop. He writes, am I the only one getting tired of seeing McGregor Mayweather headlines? I feel like this story is the new MMA in New York. It'll be talked about and talked about until it happens in an underwhelming, well, that happened, now what, fashion. Thoughts? Dave, you are not the only one. Okay, I'll agree that it's... It's not getting tired of the headlines. No, it's been tired. I've done been tired of Mayweather McGregor stuff. However, it does seem some implausibly like it's getting closer. Like it feels more realistic now than it did. You know, when you're talking about it six months ago, it yeah. was just like quit wasting our time. No, with I would, this nonsense. I would tell you that the very thing that makes it seem more possible today is that we are all so damn tired of hearing about it. And yet the the rumors slash news reports won't die. They just keep happening. And it does feel like a smoke where there's smoke, there's fire situation at this point. Uh, you had Dana White come out. What is he, he was on Conan. Is that what he was on? All right. But the, come on. When Dana White says that the fight will happen, then that's and, the thing that makes me think it won't. You had that. You had Conor McGregor uh, at a boxing event this past weekend. Uh, dressed like an old man taking his wife out to spaghetti night at the Elks Club, uh, and yet treating the boxing media to the Conor McGregor special. The full experience. Which it seemed to me the boxing media was was pleased to get. Uh, and I guess you can understand why, but at the same time, like here in the MMA world, we've been feasting on Conor McGregor for a few years now. I understand he shows up one night only in a fur coat and a pair of big, enormous glasses with a bar across the top uh, and starts telling you he's going to take over boxing. Uh, if you have been waiting around to, to fill up your steno pad, if you're a boxing reporter, your ship just came in, my you're friend. You're chomping on a, st st a cigar stub and you're just grinning through the whole thing. However, the thing I disagree with here is that, you know, the comparison to MMA in New York where it'll be talked about and talked about till it happens and then feel underwhelming. Um, if this does happen, and while I think the fight, I still think the fight would be pretty one-sided if these guys get into an actual boxing match with each other. Uh, but if this fight does happen, you know, sometime in the, this calendar year, while it's still semi-relevant, it would be huge. Uh, you know, a huge boxing star against a huge MMA star. It would, for one thing, the money involved in it, I think, might change a lot of people's perspectives in a not dissimilar way to the, the way the UFC sale did. When people see that, that kind of money that can be involved in uh, a fight with an MMA guy, I think that changes the landscape a little bit, at least changes people's attitudes a little bit. The uh, financial manager at the, the dealership where I bought my van... Turned out to be an MMA fan, kind of an old school MMA fan who had drifted out of it a little bit because he's about our age and has a wife and children. Uh, and he wanted to talk to me about Mayweather McGregor. And he said that he would totally buy it on pay-per-view to watch it happen. So that's my anecdotal evidence that you are correct, sir. That and he's a finance guy, so he knows all about it, right? Yeah, he's got the money squirreled away and everything. Yeah. Uh, what if Conor McGregor knocked out Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match, though? I mean, you just got to think about it, though, right? You just got to consider the possibility. I suppose you have to consider the possibility. For one, the first thing that comes to my mind is if Conor McGregor pulled that off, he would be insufferable. We would all be insufferable, Ben. We would be like that uh, gif of the guy making the face in the like at the at the fight, the street fight, and the one guy is making that oh, somebody just got knocked out face that you see. That would be all of us. We would all be that guy.
The question that somebody posed last week in my mailbag thing was, if he makes you know a $100 million payday or something fighting Floyd Mayweather, do you ever see Conor McGregor again? I mean, why would he come back? Well, my answer was I could see him coming back if, for instance, he got tooled up by Floyd Mayweather yeah. in a boxing match, which is what I think would be the most likely thing to have happen, uh, and he didn't want to go out like that. True. Yeah. I mean, if he even if he got tooled up, but he got $100 million, I would think I, I would go out like that. That seems seems like a good way to go out as far as I'm concerned. But you uh, just have a different van for every day of the week, wouldn't you? Exa- yeah, absolutely. Uh, last headline I saw said Conor McGregor. And this doesn't mean anything, obviously. But he was targeting September for the Floyd Mayweather bout, which made me think, yeah, he's we're not going to see him for a while over on our side of the aisle. Because remember, they were talking about him taking 10 months off and then coming back to the UFC. So we were thinking maybe end of summer, early fall. Well, shit, if you're fighting Floyd Mayweather in a boxing fight in September, uh, you're out for the year. At least the year. And that assumes that any number of dominoes falls in terms of new contract negotiations with the UFC. Yeah, there's a lot of time for that to get real interesting is what I'm hearing. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on Tuesday through Friday, all those days that we're not recording the podcast. News always happens. Stuff always breaks. It's short, it's informative, it's funny. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, speaking of the unpredictable ebb and flow of this sport that we were talking about at the top of the show, how about your guy Jimmy Manoa, the paper boy? Paper boy. Goes out there in the main event of UFC Fight Night 107 and shuts out Beaston overtime Corey Anderson's lights three minutes and five seconds into the first round. Uh, with Subscription one- canceled is what you're saying. That's... <laughs> Uh, I would say with one of the more nonchalant left hooks that ultimately ends with the other guy out cold on his face. Uh, and then he has some stuff to say afterwards, including, but not limited to London. What's up? What the fuck? Uh, and you wake up Monday morning. Does Jimmy Manoa seem like a more legitimate light heavyweight contender and, or a capital G guy that you might want to know about in this division? Before he fought Corey Anderson at one of the, at least on paper, most underwhelming UFC cards of the year on the fightpass.com, did Jimmy Manuel find a way to spin some gold out of this thing? He did a lot with very little to work with. I'll say that. Going out there, getting that first round knockout, then making the most of his mic time, you know, especially afterwards and at the press conference afterwards where he can get John Jones's name in his mouth, but in a, a way that is more than just the, hey, I want to be champion, normal, post-fight, shooting-for-the-stars kind of thing. 
you know, forces kind of some, some Jimmy Manuel conversation to take place in the MMA sphere, which that's an accomplishment in itself. So, but the light heavyweight division, I think this, the fact that Jimmy Manuel can be on a two fight winning streak, uh, the most recent win coming against a guy who has now lost two of his last three. And he can go out there and say, I want the next title shot. After, I want the winner of DC and Rumble. And it's somewhat realistic that that might happen if John Jones isn't ready to go or if John Jones is doing something else or if John Jones manages to further disqualify himself. The fact that that is somewhat realistic tells you just how shallow the light heavyweight class is because it's not that the anything that Jimmy Manuel has done recently has made an unbreakable case for him as the next contender in the division, it's just that, well, who else is there? Right. And, you know, the, I, there's a lot of different ways you can look at that record, the Jimmy Manuel record. You can say he's got a two-fight win streak, which is better than nothing in the light heavyweight division. You can say he's three and two in his last five, which once again makes you feel like, eh, not great. The losses are to Anthony Johnson and Alexander Gustafson, which again, maybe that makes it seem a little better. And then you reckon with the fact that he's actually 17 and two overall as a pro. So those two losses, uh, to Anthony Johnson and Alexander Gustafson are the only career losses for Jimmy Manoa. Uh, now it starts to sound a little better again. Then I tell you he's 37. Uh, now it starts to sound maybe not so great anymore. If you didn't have access to how old Jimmy Manoa was and you just saw him getting off the bus. There's no way. There's no way you'd guess correctly. Like if you could, you know those, like you can use an app that will tell you your mental age. Like you can take a, an IQ test or whatever and it'll be like you have the cognitive function of a 25-year-old. You do not. But okay. You, you could do the same thing for Jimmy Manoa's physicality, and it would be like you have you have the physicality of a nineteen year old, just four star recruit. I would say to the University of Georgia, twenty nine. But all right, yeah. Um, okay, but it does seem like we've talked about this in the past that there's kind of this real sharp drop off in divisions like light heavyweight, where the top three, I'd say four guys. I'd say you could say John Jones. Daniel Cormier, Anthony Johnson, and Alexander Gustafson, and those are the guys. You know, that's that's the 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 four guys that seem like they could all at any point fight for the belt, and who knows, maybe win the damn thing. Uh, and everybody else seems like they're vying to be at the top of the outside of that. And Jimmy Manoa's only two attempts to crack into that zone have resulted in his only two losses. Uh, and not particularly close fights either. So I guess what I'm asking is, do we decide what, that he has improved since then or just got a little more experience or the other guys maybe have gotten worse since then? I don't know because I don't see those other guys having fallen off too much since the time when they beat Jimmy Manoa. I do think Jimmy Manoa has gotten better at something, rounded out his game at least a little bit and seems like, especially in this fight, you saw him comfortable with what he wanted to do and managing to force his kind of fight. And intelligently, I thought. And it worked out for him. But do I think he goes out there and, and doesn't get knocked out by Anthony Johnson if they fight again? No, not really. I think that one probably goes the same. Yeah, and I think you have to take a little bit into account the competition here. Corey Anderson is another guy who's ranked inside the top 10 at the light heavyweight division, but at the same time uh, is considered kind of an inexperienced fighter, not necessarily a guy who's right up there among the elite at this point. And so for Jimmy Manoa to to knock him out isn't the kind of win where you look at it 
and you see Jimmy Manoa as a whole new athlete out there. Uh, but at the same time, man, you just hit the nail on the head with the like shallow nature of this division. Like you can't run the light heavyweight division indefinitely with Daniel Cormier, Anthony Johnson, Alexander Gustafson, and John Jones alone. So it's not that bad of a strategy to go with like the Glover to Shira Oven St. Prue, uh, strategy of just maybe you just hang around until, uh, Till it's time for you to get your, your chance, your opportunity. And if you're Glover to Shira, and I guess also Ovin St. Prue at this point, till you get another chance. Uh, because there are so few dudes hanging around at 205 that, uh, they need, they need you out there. Yeah. And you're probably going to get a couple whacks at it. Well, and I, I do think though that you have to give Jimmy Manoa some credit for maximizing his exposure here. Oh, for sure. Yeah. He did some great work over the weekend. I thought surprisingly great. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing I keep wondering when he goes out afterwards and says, you know, because he calls for the winner of DC Rumble. And you're thinking like, OK, that would sound like that's John Jones's job, uh, seeing as how he's going to come back this summer or at least would be cleared off suspension this summer. If nothing else happens between now and then. And then in the press conference, when he further uh, explains his thinking there and he's like, oh, I'm not interested in John Jones. He took steroids and that taints everything he's done. And for me, no, it doesn't really like because at least because of the circumstances and the way I'm inclined to come down on what really happened there with John Jones. It's hard for me to say that that one incident, the what did he refer to it? Pungently referred to it as a dick pill uh, that that erases everything he's done up until that point, um, whether you believe that excuse or not. But if Jimmy Manuel goes out there and talks like that, a part of me wonders, like, is he just trying to remove John Jones from this equation because of John Jones's ability to kind of step right in whatever he wants and leapfrog anybody who's there. Uh, or is it actually a kind of a clever ploy on his part to that gets us more talking about Jimmy Manoa than it would if he was just like, I want to fight now. I want a title shot. That's pretty familiar. We're all used to that. We talked just last week about the guys who maybe, stretch what they request a little too far in that moment of victory and end up getting nothing because of it instead of choosing a more realistic call-out. But when you do it this way, and you start lobbing those bombs at the champ who can't come off the sidelines yet and beat you up because of it, maybe you, you buy yourself a little more time in the headlines and you, you slide into that top echelon, at least in people's minds. Yeah, I think it's kind of a shrewd move by Jimmy Manawa to to take that approach. Uh, it's definitely, people are definitely going to ask John Jones about it. Uh, the next time we get the chance to talk to him. And that's, do you think that John Jones goes with pretending not to even know who Jimmy Mano is? I think that that would be a shrewd move on John <laughs> Jones's part. Or but, does he, does he do with a, like Floyd Mayweather? I don't know her. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, either way, if you're Jimmy Manuel, even if John Jones gives you a new phone, who dis, uh, you're still in those headlines. People are still going to write the story that's like John Jones pretends not to know who Jimmy Manoa is. Who the fuck is that guy? Even though there's only two people in this division. Like, we know damn well John Jones knows every single light heavyweight on the UFC roster and probably has their dimensions taped off on the wall at home. Uh, but yeah, he can pretend he doesn't know who Jimmy Manoa is, but it still gets the job done as far as, as, as Jimmy Manoa is concerned. Uh, in my opinion, it also takes some, uh, some pretty big grapefruits if you're Jimmy Manoa to go out there uh, at 37 years old and possessing the body of a much younger man when part of the fight night storyline is that you've put on a bunch of weight for okay. this fight. All right. To go out there slanging arrows okay. everywhere. I see what you're doing here. The crowd starts chanting, lock her up. 
You know? You're doing the verbal equivalent of USADA phone emoji, phone emoji. <laughs> That's what you're doing right now. I'm not casting any stones. I'm just saying. You're just saying, just yeah. Saying stuff. Uh, well, do you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we can move on from round number one. Or did you have a, do you have something you want to see from Jimmy Manawa in the, in the, in the near future? Uh, other than him changing his name to Paperboy officially? Yes, other than that. We've, we covered that. We know. No. As far that as I'm all. concerned, he is the Paperboy. Yes. All right, well, Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I know you must have noticed the main card, which by which I mean you have to switch your stream on the computer, uh, here kicked off with a crackerjack of a fight between Arnold Allen and Maquan Amerikani. Uh, ended in a, a split decision that Arnold Allen won. A hell of a fight. I'm sitting there, Chad. I'm watching it. I'm thinking, well, there, there go your fight of the night bonus right there. That looks exactly like the kind of fight that the UFC likes to reward with 50,000 smackaroos for each dude. Then come to find out the bonuses for the second event in a row, no fight of the night award is given. It's just four performance bonuses to Jimmy Manuel, Gunnar Nelson, Marlon Vera, and, uh, Mark Diacasi. Uh, is that how you say that guy's name? Doesn't matter. We'll get to it later with Vassar stuff. Anyway, are you fucking kidding me? These guys go out there, put on easily the best fight of the night, and no bonus money in it for them. I guess I hope that it means that we're just permanently doing away with fight of the night, which also seems kind of weird, uh, because then it starts to seem like your performance of the night bonuses are just going to end up being knockout bonuses by another name. But are you fucking kidding me? How do those guys go home empty-handed? Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Ben, you know what's worse? Than flying over to England, getting yourself acclimated to the time change before you have to have your fight. What? Getting woke up in the middle of the night because of a goddamn fire alarm at the fighter hotel. And then you and all the rest of the people that are going to be on this card this weekend, including, I assume, your opponent, are all shuffling out of the hotel in their pajamas gotcha. in the middle of the night to go stand around on the street in foggy, chilly London waiting to get the all clear to go back in, try to catch a couple hours of sleep before you got to get up. Got your damn slippers on, your cozy pants. Brad Pickett's out there with his newspaper, right? Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Fire alarm at the fighter hotel. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, I don't have to tell you that I'm pretty excited about whenever Gunnar Nelson fights, but I only get more excited when he goes out there, puts Alain Joban away in the second round by first wobbling him all to hell with a punch and a head kick, and then, as he explained later, deciding, okay, the submission is now available, and this is a pretty man. You don't want to mess up uh, a work of art like Joe Ban's face if yeah. you don't have to. It's a humanitarian move by there he Gunnar goes. Nelson. He goes on, latches on the guillotine choke, rolls to mount with it, finishes it there, uh, almost breaks into a smile. He's so damn happy. Gunny Nelson. Time to get serious about this guy? Yeah, you know what I like about Gunnar Nelson is that he's going out there like as an old-time sportsman, almost. Like, interested in the competition and the technique and the not necessarily punching his opponent in the face that much. Like, 
The, the guillotine is there. He's going to take it, get the win as fast as possible, give you like a borderline completely humorless interview, and then uh, drive on off back to Iceland and hang out there for a while. Uh, and the, the, this is a pretty big win for him over Alan Joban to put a couple of uh, victories between himself and that loss to Damian Maya back at UFC 194. Uh, and I think, yeah, he's he's on the way to rehabilitating rehabilitating his status as a as a welterweight contender and the dude's still only 28 years old going to turn 29 this summer uh and then uh you got people out there kicking around the idea of having him fight steven the wonder man thompson which is uh would watch hashtag would watch just seems like about the most perfect damn thing that could happen at this point would be a a karate match between uh steven thompson and gunner nelson well and the thing about like the two losses that he has is Kind of similar to what we were just talking about with Jimmy Manuel, where he has two losses to two of the top guys in the division. But, you know, Gunnar Nelson's, uh, that first loss was a split decision to Rick Story. And hey, Rick Story can make anybody look kind of awkward. Yeah. That's kind of his kind, thing. That's what he did. That's, that was his whole bread and butter. Then, you know, you go out there and getting yourself into a grappling match with Demian Maya and you lose, but don't get submitted. I can't hate on you for that. That's Demian Maya, man. So fine. Then, you know, since then he's beaten Albert Tumanoff and now Joe Ban. I, I feel like we still, there's still a lot of reasons to think that Gunnar Nelson could turn into a capital G guy in that division. Oh, yeah, I agree 100%. And this, let's not understate what an impressive performance this was this weekend against Alan Joe Ban, uh, pretty much from start to finish. And I would include on the list of impressive stuff that happened, uh, in between rounds where Gunnar Nelson, like, these, you know, these guys didn't have a wild first round, but it was like a decent pace for, you know, for a couple of professional fighters out there. And then Gunnar Nelson goes back to his corner, squats down in front of the stool, eschews the school, the stool in extreme fashion. And he's not even breathing heavy. He just looks like he's been out walking his dog. And when that happened, I was like, I think Alan Joban might be in some trouble here. Like Gunnar Nelson, he has not yet even begun to fight. And then, he stumbles him with that with a single like pinpoint accurate strike and chokes him out a matter of seconds later, less than a minute into the second round. I feel like you come away from this Gunnar Nelson performance and that 16, two and one looks a whole heck of a lot better than it did, uh, you know, less than a couple years ago on the heels of that loss to Damian Maya. Now, the question I have is while Gunnar Nelson versus Steven Thompson feels like a perfect fight at this moment. I could also see a fight like that resulting in absolutely nothing happening. That's just, that's a vision that I have in my mind brain, as you might say. Yeah, and like it's kind of an interesting matchup, really, because they both fight with similar karate styles on the feet. But I think in terms of being a, a, a well-rounded mixed martial arts fighter, you would probably have to give the nod in terms of pure skill sets to Gunnar Nelson. But we've seen Stephen Thompson be... Uh, pretty good at keeping his feet. Like that's one of the things that I think makes it such an interesting matchup is that you probably give the nod in terms of pure striking to to the Wonder Man, but if it went to the ground, clearly Gunnar Nelson would have a big advantage. Uh, and yet Stephen Thompson has been so good at kind of controlling the distance and and having good takedown defense uh, that that it's it would it, to me is a really interesting puzzle of two styles. And at the same time. I also think that that the possibility is you might be right that those guys just go out there uh, and kind of dance around with their wide stances. 
for 15 minutes or 25 minutes or whatever it turned out to be. But it does feel like, as far as matchmaking-wise, we're about to get some glimpses into what the UFC sees as the future for the welterweight division. Because there's a lot of interesting things that can happen here, and yet the the specter of GSP's return... I think kind of throws a shadow over this division where right now, you know, you got Tyron Woodley at the top and it feels like everybody is just waiting for that, that era to give way to something else. You got all these, you know, you got guys like Demian Maya and now Gunnar Nelson who are starting to line up as like, okay, how do you not move on and, and just start to think of this as if only by default, kind of the pure competition division. You know, we're doing money fights everywhere else. At welterweight, it seems like, all right, maybe that's the one where, like, the rankings might actually start to feel like they matter. I don't know. I, I think it's going to be interesting in, in the next few months, depending on how these guys start getting paired off, I think we're going to find out what the UFC thinks it can do at welterweight right now. I agree. And I think one of the things that is kind of good if you're Gunnar Nelson is that I will read you the five names of the guys immediately in front of him in the welterweight rankings and every single one of them you will hashtag would watch because they are Donald Cerrone, Dung Young Kim, Neil Magny, Jorge Masvidal, and Carlos Condit. So pretty much whatever they come up with for Gunnar Nelson is probably going to be awesome. And I would think that Steven Thompson uh, would be equally, if not more awesome than, than any of those fights uh, I just read off. Uh, you know, one other thing that I'm, that I, kind of like about Gunnar Nelson that I noticed during this fight night that I haven't necessarily noticed before is that he's from Iceland, right? But he speaks English with kind of an Irish brogue. I assume because he's up there at straight blast gym training in, in Ireland, he's got kind of like the Conor McGregor style beard going on. So if you squint and you watch the post fight interview with Gunnar Nelson, it's like Conor McGregor. If he was really whacked out on quaaludes, okay. Like, take all of the excitement all elements of excitement out of Conor McGregor and what you have left is Gunnar Nelson. Huh. Like with his just really emotionless uh, and yet super accurate accounting of the fight and like his process and what he wanted to do with Alan Joban. Kind of the same stuff you get from Conor McGregor. You just get it with the volume turned up to 11 when it's so McGregor. maybe like if Conor McGregor had just gone and had his wisdom teeth taken out. Yeah. And he's still like exactly woozy right. from the gas. Yes. And so when you go to pick him up, because he's got to have a friend drive him home, and you're having a conversation with him, and you're like, man, he's really not himself. He's acting like Gunnar Nelson right now. If they do make the Stephen Thompson Gunnar Nelson fight, I insist that they make a Karate Kid mini movie uh, to promote it with John Kavanaugh dressed up like the, the sensei from the Cobra Kai. Just imagine those guys running around in their sleeveless geese. And you know Kavanaugh would be into it. Yeah, you know he would. I'm in for that. Count me in. Stephen Thompson as Daniel LaRusso, living in whatever weird dorm they make it look like Stephen Thompson lives in every time he fights. Catching flies with chopsticks. Yeah. That's a free one, UFC PR team. That's on us. Anything else about Gunnar Nelson you want to say? No. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, we were being facetious a week or two ago 
when we said that if the UFC was intent on continuing to bribe Kelvin Gastelum into staying at middleweight, that it might want to offer him a fight with the greatest middleweight of all time, Anderson Silva, in the wake of Gastelum's win over Vitor Belfort. That was cheeky of us, I thought. Lo and behold, turn around this week, and uh turns out that it's true that we are indeed targeting Anderson Silva versus Kelvin Gastelum on June 3rd at UFC 212, which I believe is in Rio, correct? That's right. So I think it's interesting to talk about this from a couple of different angles. How about the angle of us influencing this sport in an accidental way? That's obviously the most important angle, was you know that Sean Shelby was pumping the greatness straight into his ears, listening to the CME, and he thought, I'll show those fuckers. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'll take, I'm gonna blow these bastards' minds. That's what he thought. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Uh, more likely, Kelvin Gaslam goes out there and asks for it, right? And, uh. And with alarming speed gets his wish. Yeah. How just, often do you see that happen? Just a couple of days later, I saw a tweet from ESPN's Brett Okamoto today saying that the UFC had been considering Anderson Silva versus Yoel Romero. And then decided to to give him Gastelum after Gastelum TKO'd Vitor Belfort in the first round. Which I think gives credence to your argument that you were making a couple of weeks ago. Which at the time, I poo-pooed a little bit. Was that the Kelvin, or the, the Anderson Silva-Derek Brunson fight was maybe a just-go-away booking for Anderson Silva. In the wake of that, Anderson Silva obviously gets kind of a controversial decision victory over Derek Brunson to find out that they were thinking about throwing the spider out there with Yoel Romero adds evidence, I believe, to the fact that someone in the Zufa Tower is trying to get this man killed. I accept your apology. That was not part of it. <laughs> um, but, I mean, we've entered a new phase of the Anderson Silva career, which maybe we had entered a while ago, but this is stone-cold evidence that Anderson Silva is putting other guys over, right? Or like that he's that that if he's gonna fight Derek Brunson and Kelvin Gastelum back to back and the other option was Yoel Romero, we're not necessarily, if we are the UFC, looking to extend the lifespan of Anderson Silva's career. Yeah. We're trying to take it like a wet dish rag and wring it out for whatever last little bit might be in there. The thing about the idea of an Anderson Silva UL Romero fight when I thought about that, it was like, okay, first of all, it seems crazy to me that age-wise, it makes it seems to make sense when you consider that because it seems like Uel Romero uh, would absolutely murder Anderson Silva at this point in a terrifying fashion. But I guess if you were thinking about making that fight, your thought process would go, it's a way to keep Uel Romero busy. With that, probably without knocking him out of title contention. And if Anderson Silva does surprise the hell out of you and find a way to go out there and win that, then, you know, you can do Anderson Silva versus Mike Bisping again and maybe ring a few more pay per view buys out of that. Who knows? But when you're doing Anderson Silva versus Kelvin Gastelum now, now it starts to seem like, all right, even if he does go out there in front of the home crowd in Rio, beat Kelvin Gastelum. And everybody's jumping up and down, throwing beers uh, into the cage. You can have a good time that way. You don't really necessarily ruin anything in the division. Kelvin Gastelum seems like he really doesn't even regard himself as a true middleweight anyway. So he'll just use that as an excuse he needs to go back down to welterweight. It seems like a just-for-the-hell-of-it fight that you would only make if, like you said, 
you're not really concerned with finding a way to keep Anderson Silva around. Yeah, and the speed with which it happens, with with, with which it happened, make, kind of makes it feel like that's that's right. Like, you had other options, and I assume other options that did not include sending Anderson Silva out to fight Yoel Romero and then going out with a rake to sweep up his bones after it was over. Uh, you you know, when we talked about, when we the last time we talked about Anderson Silva's future, you know, George St. Pierre being back in the mix, uh, Vitor Belfort, even though he said he didn't want to fight another Brazilian trolling around for someone to have his own retirement fight against on June 3rd. So it does feel like, in some ways, very purposeful matchmaking to pit Anderson Silva against Kelvin Gastelum so quickly. And at the same time, as you just said, a fight that doesn't necessarily uh, come with enormous stakes, uh, or at least a lot to 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 gain from it if you're Anderson Silva, and a lot to necessarily lose if you're Kelvin Gastelum. So it it I don't know, man. It's just like a it feels like a cool and cruel, a cold and cruel booking, and and to me just like undermines the. Uh, the thin line that you can walk in this sport between being on top and being the greatest of all time, being this guy that, that, you know, fans seem to adore. And then suddenly, well, now you're just fodder for whoever the new up and coming guy is. And that just seems to be how it works over and over again. That seems to be the same narrative that we keep seeing, uh, which every time it plays out exactly that way depresses me anew when I feel like I should be used to that by now. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, maybe more than anything else, it kind of once again brings up the, just like how difficult it is to cash in your chips in this sport. You know, we saw, we just talked about at the beginning of the, uh, of the show about Brad Pickett who goes out there uh, to have his own retirement fight in London, where he was a big star, where he'd been fighting his entire career uh, seems to like, if you're going to walk away and you're Brad Pickett, it's hard to like set the moment up, much better than that, and then he gets his opponent switched the week of the fight, goes out there and has to fight like a lank, a lanky uh, stand-up fighter with a long reach and ends up getting knocked out on his, on his own farewell night. And then you have situations like Anderson Silva, who just seems to be overstaying his welcome by quite a bit. And it just, it, I think it brings up the question of whether or not there's any really good way to like try to walk away from this sport. It just seems like a cruel mistress all I, the way around. I would have said the way GSP did it. Right, exactly. <laughs> and he's back. And then last week you got Josh Berkman uh, with his own retirement false start. It's just like everywhere you look, uh, you got guys unable to to uh, pull the plug on the thing when they when they probably should do it. Yeah, well, I. At the same time, when I think about where this leaves Kelvin Gastelum, if he goes out here and puts a couple of those same left hands he put on Vitor Belfort, if he if he knocks out Anderson Silva, I mean, just let that sink in for a second. Welterweight Kelvin Gastelum goes up there, knocks out Anderson Silva in Rio, silencing the crowd. Then, then what? I mean, then is is Kelvin Gastelum suddenly like? Do you force him to stay at middleweight by then giving him a title shot? Like, where does the long con go from there? Right. Well, and I mean, honestly, man, it doesn't feel like the options for Kelvin Gastelum 
are greatly improved if he beats Anderson Silva because he just TKO'd Vitor Belfort in the first round, at which point we had the discussion, well, you could have him fight Robert Whitaker, you could have him fight Musasi, you could have him fight Weidman, you could have him fight like Jacare or Rockhold or Romero. If he goes out and beats Anderson Silva, unless he fights the winner of Michael Bisping, George St. Pierre, well, he could fight Robert Whitaker, he could Bobby fight Musasi, he could Sweet fight... And sassy. Jacare Souza, he could fight Rockhold, he could fight Romero. Like, I'm not sure that we get, I mean, maybe to casual fans, if they tune in and see this kid, Kelvin Gastelum, lay waste to Anderson Silva, that puts him in a better marketing position. But I feel like to people who've been paying attention to this sport, you don't necessarily come out with a Kelvin Gastelum who is any more of an intriguing middleweight than he was before. Or maybe... If the Legends Tour is going to continue, you bring Matt Hughes back, put him against Kelvin oh Gastelum God. next. Why would you do that? Boom. Because you hate Matt Hughes? Now you're just trying to make everyone sad or happy. I don't know. Maybe people <laughs> would be pleased to see that. That's just a bleak future you imagine for us, sir. That's just You, you say that now. You Remember when you poo-pooed my Anderson Silva, Kelvin Gastelum suggestion? I guess, Yeah, no, you're the oracle at this point. i got to give go. you the benefit of the doubt. Just tee it up. All right, Ben. Well, let's do just saying stuff, uh, and then we'll get out of here for this for this week. Ben, this week I'm just saying, you know what I like about John Gooden and Dan Hardy, despite the or aside from the fact that they make everything about MMA sound just classy as shit. What's that? I like that they continually apologize for the bad language during UFC events, and I assume that these things are on uh, television over there in Britain. Yet at the same time, in the United States. You can't really stumble on UFC Fight Night 107 by accident. That's you gotta, true. You got to seek it out. You got to sign up for the Fight Pass, and as you said, uh, watch the prelim stream and then click over to the main card stream when the time comes. And I feel like if you navigate that far, you've probably seen an MMA event before, and you probably know that all of the dudes in this sport could not possibly get through an event without dropping a bunch of F-bombs, even if you specifically paid them not to do it. And for that fact alone, I just love it that Gooden and Hardy are out there keeping it clean for the kids, running a family show. And every time someone's corner, you're a corner man, for God's sakes, you don't know you're on TV, <laughs> drops an F-bomb, they got to be like, well, we apologize for the strong language. Just I like saying. it. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying we have made no mention of it, but I would be remiss if I let this podcast go by and did not shine a little light on the inspiring split decision victory of my guy Timothy Johnson over Daniel Omelianchuk. Tim Johnson is making a big play for your heart recently. Now that fight, Chad, was pure brawlability from your guy Tim Johnson. He goes out there, he's the slower fighter, he's not as sharp on his feet, and he just finds a way to, by God, get it done. Now I'm just saying, somehow, according to... You know, Wikipedia and Sharedog and UFC.com, somehow a guy like Timothy Johnson, who has like a name that sounds like he just picked two American names out of the phone book and mashed them together, does not have a nickname. And you look at him, you look at the whole thing he's bringing to you straight out of North Dakota, and there seem to be a whole lot of options. Like, it seems like you could just choose a number of different blue-collar professions, whether or not he has any experience in them, just stick them in there as a nickname, and it would work. I'm just saying, somebody needs to get on that. Just saying. Just saying. State Trooper? Sure. Tim the State Trooper Johnson. 
I don't know. Or I'm even just, just Trooper. Just just trooper. Leave, it, leave it vague. Trooper Tim Johnson, that that might be the winner right there. Trooper makes him sound like one of the boys in my daughter's uh, preschool class. They're all, yeah, named, they're all named stuff like Trooper, Tracker, Braden, Jaden. Sure, there you go. It's kind of like, a, you know, if a scout from To Kill a Mockingbird grows up, she marries Trooper. Yeah, absolutely. I'm into it. All right, so I guess while we're putting out the call, we need to think of a nickname for Tim Johnson. Unless we're, we or we could just put out the call for everybody to agree that Trooper Tim Johnson is pretty kick-ass. I mean, I like it. We'll see what the people at home can come up with. Nothing going on this weekend. Ain't shit going on. Nothing going on the weekend after that. I'd say pretty good chance that a week from today, the co-main event podcast will be running an ain't shit going on episode. So get your cards and letters to us early and often because we'll be needing some... uh some listener mail for that one. Uh, as for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and be done. We are through. We are out. So how's that minivan ride? Looks pretty smooth. It's it's kind of amazing, actually. It's the first brand new car I've ever owned. Never owned one before. So it is like the universe played a joke on me to have it be a minivan. <laughs> Yet at the same time, I'm driving around in it just kind of loving life. I'm going to tell you what I learned by buying my first new car a couple years ago, which is... Get those seat covers right away because your kids will beat the hell out of that. We got some seat protectors in there. Uh, I think I'm going to need to take an additional step to go for a full seat cover. <laughs>